Hello and welcome to the Training in Public Health podcast. I'm Shamil Haroon. Huge gains have been made in global health over the past century, from the eradication of smallpox to reductions in child and maternal mortality, among many other public health successes. Training in global health is one of the most exciting and inspiring opportunities available to public health specialty trainees. I spoke to Dr. Peter Baker to discuss this further. Hi, Pete, and thanks very much for taking part in the podcast. Um, Could you introduce yourself and say a little bit about your background in public health? Yeah, thanks, Jamil. Um, So my name is Pete Baker. Um, I'm a London trainee. Um, I'm in my ST3 year at the moment at DFID, and I want to tell everyone a bit about this placement. Um, My background is... um, So I'm a medical doctor, have an international health interest, um, I did my F1 and F2 years in London, um, worked in Sierra Leone for a bit um, and did a master's in health policy planning and financing and then um, and then applied to the training scheme. Um, would you like to know a bit more about the, my time in the training scheme so far? Uh, yeah, I think that would be helpful, yeah, just to get, yeah. give it an idea of how you go from generic training to working more in, in global health. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I was, uh, I discussed for a long time with my training program director and various ESs that my interest was in global health but um but I did get a grounding um in in you know in broad public health through Tower Hamlet's local authority um which, in which involved both kind of you know the usual range and including health improvement work but also I did make sure I got some health service work with the CCG um and then you know, part A and part B and health protection time um and then I'm, I'm an academic uh, ACF, so I will do nine months at Imperial after DFID, but I, I decided to move that beyond DFID because I really wanted to go... I, sorry, I should say I also went for, to respond to the, the Ebola um, emergency in Sierra Leone um, just before I w- went to DFID, and that made me realise that I really wanted to focus quite strongly on international health, and so I applied to DFID um, prior to my academic placement so that I know what I'd like to do my research in because I, I want to combine kind of international health with research and international health, essentially. That's great. Thanks very much for the introduction. And we may well um, touch on some of the work that you you did in Sierra Leone prior to to working at DFID. Um, Could you just say what DFID is and what DFID stands for? So it's it's the Department for International Development. um, And it's a government government department like the Department of Health. It's it's completely an independent department like that. Um, And it spends now 0.7% of our our complete GDP. So it's a huge, huge funding organization. Um, um, So I think we spend somewhere sort of five to 10 billion pounds on health every year um, amongst many other development priorities. Um, It's a very very large number of money. Um, And I particularly work on HIV policy within that. Um, That's that's the focus for me. Great. So why did you choose that placement particularly? So, I mean, there are so a couple of things. Firstly, there are not that many um, international health placements within the training programme. So that's the kind of um, sort of simplest answer. But I've always been interested in international health and I've always known DFID as um, sort of a leading organisation in that. The reason why DFID in particular is because... Um, Quite often we, we talk a lot about health and all policies and we talk about multi, sort of multi-sectoral work in public health and DFID really is 
uh, sort of an epitome of that in a way, but in that it doesn't really think of itself as a health organisation. It thinks of itself as a really broad development organisation and brings in, so you can be working alongside an economist, uh, a social development expert, as they're called in DFID, um, and you can be, and, and uh, a statistician, and you can be working really, really um, broadly with different professions on how do you improve a particular issue, which might be a broad development issue or might be a health issue. Um, and for instance, for me, that's HIV. And so I wanted that combination of an international experience um, within the training program, which is which is limited. But I also wanted an experience which includes um, the the breadth of sort of multi sectoral, multi professional working. And I also just to add one other thing. I've also got a strong interest in kind of the economics, economics issues, things about cost effectiveness and um, how economic development leads to, to to improved health. And 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 DFID is you know is obviously it's, it's primarily in many ways an economic development organisation. So it has a lot of economists. So this was a great opportunity for me to do both international health and and a bit of economics and um and do it within the training program great so could you say a little bit about what sort of projects you've been working on while you've been at DFID? yeah so um um we brought in as in a what's called a health advisor role so that's at the same level as other people might be um it doesn't doesn't directly translate but it's kind of a consultant level role in which they do provide support but they do kind of very much expect you to get on with a set a kind of a portfolio of work and that's something to point out quite early on is it's quite um there's quite a step up in independence but the, the kind of roles that, that I was given one is is on HIV policy that's the fu- by far the majority of my time um and essentially um the idea is to provide um, research into what a policy should be. Although, to, to be honest, when I got there, it was mostly um, mostly determined already. But you sh- but you need to update it. So, for instance, as um, as the WHO produced more later guidelines, I don't know if people have heard, but we're now the WHO latest guideline is that everyone in the world who has HIV should immediately put be put on uh, treatment. So that is um, essentially at least a thirty forty percent increase in the number of people around the world who now need antiretrovirals. Mm-hmm. So, for, so I had to then look at that and go, so what should difference response be? Is that is that evidence based? What should our evidence based policy lines be on that? Um, and then from that, so there's a little bit of policy development, but most of it's now done and it's really about implementing that policy so it's about talking to country officers and saying how could you be doing more on um on hiv but it's also about sort of external supporting external influencing so go so a lot of my work has been working with UNAIDS and and the world health organization and saying different thinks you know that this is important area so for instance we really think that um, you have to tackle the structural determinants of HIV. You can't just um, give everyone antiretrovirals and think that will solve the problem. You also have to think about gender equality and violence against women and girls, and um, and sort of social protection nets and um, and those, those kind of issues. That that so I've been going along to those kind of organisations and just prompting them and saying, as a donor, as a you know, as a as a large organisation, we really value these areas and we'd really like it if you know your strategies and your policies you know include this. So there's been a lot of negotiating and working in a, at quite an international level on um, on on what on what the global policies and global strategies should be. Um, and actually, um, some listeners might like to Google this because UNAIDS um, just agreed their next five year strategy on essentially what what is really the next five year strategy for HIV. Mm-hmm. With the with the with the goal of ending HIV as a global epidemic by 2030, which is incredibly ambitious, but quite exciting. Yeah, and to be part of that, I imagine, must be very yeah. inspiring. And uh, very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there any other projects that you're involved with uh, at DFID, or is that um, so that, the main project? That's that's, that's probably sixty percent of my work, or something like that. Um, uh, uh, 
I also also do occasional little literature, literature reviews on the latest evidence in HIV and send that round. Um, but then outside, but then I do quite a bit outside of HIV. So I work for the Sexual Reproductive Health and Rights team. Um, so our team has a quite a broad remit, um, which is essentially the whole continuum of care from um, pre-pregnancy to pregnancy and and child and adolescent health too. And so I pick up bits of work that need to be done on that. Um, one of them is um, I, is about um, working this working in the humanitarian sector on sexual reproductive health and rights. And I, th- I, I don't know if people know this, but there's quite a long division, a long-standing division between the development sector and the humanitarian sector, where development is the kind of slow-burning building up of a country and supporting a country in its development, and humanitarian is emergency responses to, like, mm-hmm. the Ebola response or to a you know, tsunami or so on. Right. Um, and we've never really had time to consider or put effort into considering... Um, those broad sexual reproductive health and rights needs, we've, we've been aware of it, but we've not really tackled it in the past very well. I don't think anyone has. And so I've been trying to sort of build up a coalition within DFID and outside of DFID. So again, a lot of negotiating, influencing, build, bringing stakeholders together, trying to work out what everyone's workload can be and what, how everyone can support it, um, and then try to finally get ministerial sign-off. So we did, we did in the end get the Secretary of State to announce that, that she was going to do more in this area in the future, which is the kind of the pinnacle of that area of work was to build a coalition, get a policy statement out from the government that we will do more on this. Um, and is that, is that kind of work? Like, yeah, it is all about sort of, yeah, working, like bringing people together and working on policy and, and then getting a kind of, getting a power block behind you so you get, you, you kind of get where, where you want in the area that's important to you. Um, and then making sure that external partners do that as well. Um, so that's another area. And then another area is early child development. So, mm-hmm. This is, I think, the public health world in the UK is way ahead of um, development on this. Um, but we're starting to realise that you know we provide a bit of nutrition to kids, some vaccination to kids, um, um, and then some school, some schooling once they get five or six. That's the kind of things we fund. But no one's really thinking about what sort of holistic public health approach to child development, including. Mm-hmm. You know, you might imagine a kind of sure start approach or health visiting approach or family partnership. Look, yeah. that hasn't really taken off very much in the international world. So, um, trying to do some basic, again, basic literature reviews and developing policies. Uh, but again, these things move very quickly away from that kind of public health approach to to essentially negotiating, influencing, and building a coalition um, behind you in your area. Um, right. And so, the, the competency development in all these areas really has been because I'm in the policy team, has been really been around those, I think it's section four or five or something, it's about, in your competencies, about strategy, it's about mm. negotiating and influencing and um, and sort of evidence into policy work. Yeah, so that was really going to be my, my next question about how, how you think all of this work kind of contributes towards the uh, training curriculum and, and clearly around policy development and yeah. using the evidence base and collaborative working. Um, you also mentioned that you have a particular interest in economic evaluation. I'm just wondering yeah. how this particular placement helped develop those skills, because I know no. that's uh, something that no, I particularly it, find uh, quite challenging. Yeah, no, it hasn't really, um, unfortunately. Um, I should say that there's there's four registrars at Diffid at the moment, and they've all all of us had really different experiences. Um, so some people have had much more on the kind of um, program design, program evaluation, detailed budgeting experience. Um, other people have worked in the research department and have, have been commissioning large research projects, which is quite an interesting angle. Um, and so they, some of those have had a bit more economic experience. Um, I've, I've worked alongside economists and so had some really interesting conversations on prioritization mainly. The thing that's really 
gripped me in tech from an economics perspective is is how do you do how do you prioritize between different disease areas how do you um if you get you know if you get, we give nearly a billion pounds to the global fund on on ASDB and malaria how do we know that that is the right thing to be putting money on as opposed to something else um but it's never been at the kind of technical level of formal cost effectiveness analysis it's much been much more been at the theoretical level of um what's an appropriate prioritization way of thinking about different priorities in in right. global. um um yeah so no, i haven't really got that experience actually yeah, i wouldn't say Okay, and, and so maybe that's an area for, for future development, potentially, for, for that placement. Yeah. Um, uh, now, working within global health and working at such a high level, are there opportunities for actually um, going overseas and, and doing um, some of that work um, with DFID overseas? Yeah, so you can never guarantee it because there's a whole bunch of things that need to align themselves for it to happen. Um, but they they do try and help out and 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 make sure that opportunities are possible. So the first thing you have to sort out is to make sure that the workload within your team is manageable, so that other people can pick up your slack when you're away. Then the country office needs to want you because they'll have to pay your costs when you go there. Right. So there needs to be a piece of work that needs to be done, and there needs to be a gap. So someone probably needs to be on maternity leave, or um, or there needs to be a temporary gap that needs filling. Or, or for instance, um, I might be going to Sierra Leone, um, and there's obviously additional work in the health system reconstruction work there at the moment. So they need kind of um, um, sort of additional capacity at the moment. Um, and then finally, the training program needs to make sure that they agree. And so every deanery has slightly different processes for this, but. Um, it probably um, needs to be done as some kind of OOPT or something like that. Um, so there's quite a lot of paperwork and agreement that needs to be put in place. And I think probably half, three quarters of people don't manage that. And maybe maybe one in four or maybe two in four, something like that. Um, people at different managed to get one or two months overseas. But I did get things like, um, you're much more likely to get, so I went to Geneva four times for different WHO and UNAIDS meetings. So that's really interesting to go and see. Um, sort of global debates and UN style debates on things. Um, I did go to Zimbabwe for a week. It's quite common to visit a country and do a review of a program or something like that. Um, and that's that's a great experience. But to get substantial one, two, three month placements overseas needs um, quite a lot more sort of organising and work. And, sure. and it's never guaranteed, unfortunately. Yeah, but in spite of that, still quite a few opportunities to to go overseas and and work yeah. with teams abroad. So um, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that's quite reassuring for those who do want to get experience of global health. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and and you've had quite a lot of experience compared to the average trainee, I would say, in um, in working overseas. Do you want to say a little bit about what you'd done before you'd gone to Difford and how that helped you? Um, so officially, they say. Well, they they do say that they they want you to have a little bit of international experience before you apply, but they um they sometimes you know if you're a good candidate for other reasons they sometimes relax that. Um, but so my experience that probably helped me get the job was that um so firstly, um as as a medical student I did an extra year in international health. Um, I I I did two electives in South Africa, um, working in hospitals, uh, and then I worked in. Then I did the East African Diploma in Tropical Medicine after my F2, so that's a three-month course in East Africa where you – it's really fascinating. You work with a bunch, uh, junior doctors from from the UK and Europe, but also um, about 20 or so from East Africa, and you really have fascinating conversations with them and lectures with them and ward rounds with them where you where you learn about um, how to provide 
care in with with limited resources and just that question of how do you look after this patient if you don't have an mri machine or you don't have this drug or you don't have that is really really important for i think for doctors to learn if they're going to work overseas so that was really interesting and um then i did then i worked in sierra leone for four or five months on a health and strengthening project called the king sierra leone partnership um, which did involve a sort of fascinating two days a week at the Ministry of Health, supporting them with their human resources for health policy making. And then I, and from that, I realised just how much countries have to, how ministries have to do to do basic um, sort of managing of a health service from a ministry's perspective. And yet they've just got no resources to do it. I think I was the only one, there was two of us that have masters in the whole department. And yeah. that gives you an idea of the capacity of, the, of, a, of a government to respond to their needs. And then there was this um, the Ebola response. So I went for three months during the Ebola crisis. So that must have been quite an experience, and uh, you, you yeah. know, I think many would consider you quite brave actually to go out during during the midst of of the um, outbreak. So, I, yeah, so it can sometimes seem brave, but on the other hand, I didn't ever see anyone with Ebola the whole time. <laughs> um, so that so I, it was probably more dangerous to be doing the screening in um, in the ports than in the NHS, but. Um, um, but no, so essentially, um, I did, I supported, um, I provided some clinical epidemiological support to the, uh, command center in, in the capital in Freetown. So they were producing huge amount of data on, um, what was going on, but they were, they weren't processing it here. They weren't putting it all together. They, um, so I helped them form a sort of sensible database and start producing regular reports on what they were on the kind of performance of the system and the performance of the response and tried to feed that into policy. So it was a great example of using sort of quantitative, quantitative skills to, to inform policymaking, although getting actual policymakers to respond to it was still really difficult, but that was, so that was fascinating. And then the second part was to support a health uh, hospital in particular, again, producing a lot of data and helping them, working alongside doctors to help them understand what was really not a very well understood disease and help them understand you know, which, which symptoms best predict Ebola, which symptoms best predict death, um, and therefore how to prioritise their resources appropriately. So um, they thought they really knew what Ebola was, but once you start looking at the data, you start realising that actually it's a really difficult disease to pin down and and using some basic analysis um, that Shimil did a lot of work on as well, that you did a lot of work on as well. Um, we produced some nice papers on that showing what you could and couldn't show um, based on presenting symptoms. So example of, of really operational epidemiology and yeah, field exactly. epidemiology. So yeah. how, how did all of that help you when you moved on to DFID? Um, so the, there's, there's some soft stuff and some hard stuff. So the soft stuff is really just being really comfortable and familiar that you understand developing country context. So you understand um, um, like what it means to have limited resources because you're in the end you're going to come up, people are going to ask you questions like, um, should developing countries have PrEP, um, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV? And in the UK, the answer to that usually is quite simple. Like As new technologies come on, we pretty much, if they're cost-effective, they just get rolled out. But to have a really good understanding that, well, that's an extra extra drug that requires extra training on extra extra human resources, and does a developing country have that? And does um, do they have health services that can realistically do that safely? And having that kind of contact with and experience of um, of low-income hospitals and epidemiology, in, in, like I did, meant that I could just... Have had the really sort of important context of what is what is possible and what is um, what is really an unreasonable request on a on a low resource setting, and then I guess um, there's a certain amount of just people 
knowing and feeling confident in in what you, in what you're doing because they know that you've been to a developing country you've you you've successfully you know deliver results in that setting and therefore they feel more confident in in your outputs and your work um and then the epidemiology skills um and the research skills that I learned during that time um Again, it's not Diffid is not unfortunately not a really research evidence heavy environment, especially not the policy department. Um, but it just makes me very familiar with the with the papers when I read them. So it's, it's about a lot of those um, sort of critical appraisal skills and just quickly being able to look at a paper and look at an issue and go, um, yes, that's you know that that's um, that's a reliable bit of evidence to use in this debate, and that's not it's that kind of that kind of quick critical appraisal that you need. That I'm sure everyone listening has as well. So, um, going forward from Diffid, what do you think the next step is, and and how do you see this kind of shaping your career? Yeah, the next step is a bit uncertain because because there are limited um, global health options going forward for me um, within the program. But I'm trying to see what the options are. So, firstly, I've got this nine months at Imperial as part of my um, ACF time. Um, uh, and so I, I need to come up with a global health project on that. Um, and then I'm in conversation with things like the Public Health England's global health team and see whether there's opportunities for placements there. Um, and then apart from that, um, I suspect I will need to come back and do some local authority time or some um, non-global health time to just to make sure that my, all my competencies are laid out uh, and are completed. Um, and then I would need to be looking at um, applying. What's, what's really difficult in global health is there's not a clear career route afterwards. There's not like a standard job to apply for. So it's, it's it, one of the great things about this year at Diffid is you make a lot of contacts and you and you hear about a lot of jobs and and that just sets you up nicely to know what to apply for in the future. But really, you just go into a very open, extremely vague job market, market after you're a consultant, and that's that's quite worrying for a lot of people. Um, so what a lot of people do is is just get a locum job in a local authority or something like that first, and then look for jobs. Um, partly partly because they get worried that you can't come, that it might be difficult to come back to the UK system unless you've done a clear consultant role first. Um, right. But I have not actually heard any concrete evidence of that, to be honest. Um, so for me, what I would probably do is go and spend a year or two, maybe as an UP or maybe um, when I when I've CCT'd. Um, and then do that as in an NGO, um, in a large program in, in a low income country to get some really substantial program experience in global health. Um, and after that, maybe look at reapplying to Diffid as a health, as a permanent health advisor or, um, or look at other perhaps, perhaps academic work, perhaps a PhD. I haven't quite, um, haven't quite established that, but my, so probably my, my main role, my main plan at the moment is, um, is to is to do a couple of years overseas and then and then look at kind of policy or public health roles in the international health. Right. So so it might be a, a benefit then for the public health workforce to figure out a way of making a more streamlined career path for people who have an interest in global health. That's, I think that's definitely true. And one and one thing that is positive about that there's there's some negatives and positives recently. One of them is the global health fellowships that um, Health Education England are funding at the moment. So you can take an additional year out. Um, as an UPT, which is paid separately, so you kind of end up with a, with a six year training program in the end, um, and they will pay you to do almost anything if it's justified in global health. So you just have to lay out a proposal. Um, so I definitely recommend people with interest in global health consider that. Um, um, but yeah, there needs there there does need to be a more structured yeah structured role. Maybe the Faculty of Public Health could do a survey or something trying to work out what the roles are in global health um, after after the CCT. Yeah, that sounds like a great suggestion. 
Um, what, just to summarise, what do you think would be the main benefits of the work that you've been doing for population health in the context of DFID and, and your global health work more generally? I often feel in the work that we all do that you never really know. Um, so you just you have to have a certain amount of confidence that sometime in the future this will be beneficial. But um, So essentially the main benefit um, is a global HIV response that is more evidence-based and more based on prevention and, and the public health and social determinants of HIV and less less focused on purely rolling out um, drugs for people. And therefore, hopefully all that, what that will lead to is a smaller HIV response that's more under control and that um, that there's a load of knock-on effects like a stronger health system and um, and and more gender equality. But this is so uncertain that anything I'll have done will have led to that. But um, what what is more concrete is that hopefully what I've done is led to a better global HIV strategy and and that will hopefully mean that the response globally is slightly more evidence-based and more based on prevention. Uh, it sounds uh, like a fantastic project that you've been involved in. I'm, I'm sure that it, it will have many benefits for population health and I think like most of the work that we do in public health, it, it's usually a long time before we, we start to see the benefits of it, particularly since yeah. we're working so far upstream on population health. Um, do you have any other advice you'd like to share with other registrars who might be interested in gaining experience in global health? Yeah. Um, so def- first one, definitely apply for DFID. Um, that's a, such, an, such a, an incredible year, as hopefully you've heard from what I've been saying, of developing yourself, understanding the international system and understanding um, uh one of the one of the leading organizations in in global health um i think in reality if you haven't had international experience then it might be an idea to take an UB and um and and go and work overseas for a year um i think there's always there's always opportunities opportunities within academia that's worth pursuing and then there's this global health fellowship so between the and there's also things like the Hartness fellowship but that's more in high income countries i guess um there are, i think just uh, just going for these and applying for them you'll be amazed um, if you're just confident and, and write a good you know, good application and ask people like myself and others to maybe support you with the application form, then I'm sure you'll get a global health experience during our training program. That's that's the incredible thing. We're in such a lucky position that we've got this five-year funding where we can do these kind of experiences. I definitely, if you've got an interest, I'd definitely go for something like DFID or one of these fellowships. So lots of opportunities really there for the taking. Yeah. Um, are there any reports or research articles you'd particularly recommend reading on global health? Mm. Um, it's such a vast, um, vast area that for someone like me, who's quite, I, I often think quite quantitative, quantitatively, um, I would start with what's really interesting is, um, there's a, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. So IHME have a global burden of disease website and it's just, and you click on the visualization, um, section within that and what you, what it just does it just shows the burden of disease around the world in different areas over different times and that combined with something like the um um gap minders i, I wouldn't go to an article i start with these these basic data sources that just visually show you um how different the world is um to what we're used to in in the uk and, and what the burden of disease is and how it's changed over time and I think that's such a fascinating view on, um, for instance, a lot of us think of the you know a very poor world and a very rich world, and the very poor world has lots of infectious diseases, and the rich world has lots of non-communicable diseases. And if you look at this data, it's just simply not not true. The the world is much more blended and complex than that, and there's lots of non-communicable diseases coming 
in low income countries. Um, and you just need to, you need to get up to date and need to really understand that complexity of, um, of, of how the world really is in these countries. Um, and yeah, in terms of other, I think, yeah, in terms of other papers where it really depends on the area you're interested in. Um, there's something called the Global Health Watch, which is a really accessible, um, book to introduce you to some global health issues and what the, what the NGO community thinks is going wrong. I think that's interesting. Um, um, and then any of the Lancet series are always valuable. So if you have a particular interest, like in child health, the Lancet series on child health is valuable. You have to take some of that stuff with a bit of a pinch of salt because it's usually produced by academics who have a bit of an agenda, agenda to push and it's usually slightly advocacy focused. But um, but yeah, I'd start with some of those Lancet series. I'm glad you mentioned the Institute for Health Metrics because I absolutely love the data visualization tools and I've used them <laughs> quite a bit for teaching and I always get a good response from that. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there any conferences uh, or courses that you'd particularly recommend in global health? Um, yeah, it's kind of sad, isn't it? After I struggle with this. Um, um, so the UCL Institute for Global Health puts on a yearly talk, which is really interesting. Um, um, so essentially, I said, no, I really can't think of one, unfortunately. Um, it's really sporadic and there's, there's always stuff going on in LSHTM that's, that's sort of related to, related, related to global health. So I guess the best advice is just to keep, keep looking at the events page on LSHTM or if you're more of a Northern trainee, the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine as well is another option. Um, um, so there might be seminars on that, 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 uh, would yeah, be advertised on those websites. Yeah, rather than a, the problem with global health is it's as big as public health. So it's like trying to have a whole conference on public health. It, it's difficult. Um, so it's, it's really a massive area. Um, so there, there aren't really, I can't think of a signature global health training course or program that would be really helpful, unfortunately. Yeah. So maybe something to develop in the future. Yeah, that would be a good idea. There is, um, Actually, one of the best ones, I mean, surprisingly, is put on by medical students, um, a little organisation called Medicine. Um, and sometimes, and there's two two a year, um, sort of in October and March. Um, and sometimes they can be fascinating. Um, yeah. So that might be something that, that registrars with a particular interest in global health could attend and, and potentially contribute towards. Yeah, it'd be great to organise workshops of that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to comment on that we haven't covered? Um, I guess there's a, another area of interest for me, which is about so about the broad um, two th- again, two things really, like the broad macroeconomic determinants of of health in, in a lot of these countries. So these countries are incredibly poor. Um, a lot of their health is really determined by things like trade agreements, by um, by tax issues, and by um, a lot of things that actually. We, we can't solve by giving aid, but we could probably solve as a country by um, changing how we interact with these countries and how the European Union EC interacts with them. And so there's a lot of interesting global health work that can be done by essentially saying, how can we as, as UK government and um, as public health people working for the government, how can we make sure that our impact on these countries is beneficial? How can we make sure that our trade agreements are beneficial? And so that leads to quite a lot of kind of advocacy roles. So there are organisations like MedAct and... Um, sort of the trade justice network that do some fantastic work, which essentially have huge public health impacts in these countries. And so I think when I when I move on to my academic role, I will pick up a bunch of kind of advocacy and NGO jobs to do that will keep me connected to the global health world. Um, because in many ways, that's more effective than you know, gallivanting around the world and um, and actually doing global health. <laughs> you can do it here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that so that's another key point that you can actually do global health within the UK without. Uh, 
having yeah. to, to travel extensively. Because I think that element of travel does put some people off. Totally. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking part in the podcast, Pete. That's been so informative, and I'm sure uh, many of our listeners will have a lot of food for thought, and and uh, hopefully it will inspire people to, to think about uh, getting further training in global health. Yeah, I hope they do too. There is a um, Global Health Registrar's email list if they want to come and join us on that, um, and also they can just get in touch with me if they want to ask any particular question. Great. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks, Jamil. If you have ideas for future episodes and would like to contribute, please do get in touch at traininginpublichealth at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.